Hello and welcome to this week's Choosing Happy podcast. I'm Heather Masters and this week I got to interview David Sontag, who is an author of the book, So You're Thinking of Moving to France, and he tells us all about his journey to moving to France and how he became an author. All that and more in this week's Choosing Happy podcast. Hello and welcome to the Choosing Happy podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with David Sontag, author of So You're Thinking of Moving to France. He was inspired to write his book after retiring from a varied career in IT consulting, and he moved to France with his wife. He's here to share his journey with us today. Welcome, David. Hello, Heather. Thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. Oh, thank you for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to writing a book? Oh, where do I start? Um, well, you'd already said that um, I started off with a career in IT, um, nothing to do with um, writing. I had no intention of writing, although I guess like most people, you, you sort of harbor the ambition that one day you might write a book, but then you think about it and uh, you think, well, okay. Um, I haven't got this burning plot of a bank robbery, a, a murder, a, a kidnapping. Um, I'm not sure how I could get a, a plot that would um, hold people's interest for two or three hundred pages, let alone weave characters in and out and come to a, uh, a denouement that everyone would uh, be happy with. Um, so I, I continued in IT. I did various things. I started as a programmer, um, systems analyst, project manager. Um, ended up having been made redundant, setting up my own company and working for myself. How I came to France is, is somewhat convoluted. I guess it started really at the end of the, of the 80s. I was working um, for a consultancy in London. I just started work for them and I spent four months on an internal project when uh, my business manager called me and said, talking about your next assignment, David, I want you to go and take over from Trisha. And that's all he needed to say because everyone in consultancy knew that Trisha was working in Paris. Right. And he said, uh, basically, I need you to go out there, take over from her and um, work through till October, which was going to be an eight month stint. Wow. Okay. So um, try, trying to move the story along, I met her at Stansted. Um, we got on the. Uh, uh, the Air UK 40 seat Fokker Friendship. Uh, she was gripping the seat next to me like there was no tomorrow. I looked at her and said to her, um, you're not happy with flying, are you? And she, she turned to me and she said, um, two weeks, eight days, four flights. And I realized at that point that, that not only did she not like flying, but she didn't like being away from home either. Um, being away from home meant being in a hotel. Um, and on my part, I had no intention of spending eight months in a hotel. So after three weeks, I moved out into a service department. Right. And that apartment um, was uh, on the edge of what is now known as La Défense, the business area at the end of the um, Champs-Élysées, effectively. And uh, my apartment was on the 14th floor overlooking the Seine. And when I looked out from the balcony to the right-hand side was the Eiffel Tower. 
In front of me was the Arc de Triomphe from the Pompidou Centre beyond, and on the left was Sacré-Cœur. And in addition, it was 1989, it was a bicentenary, there were lots of events going on, mm. and over eight months I loved being there and fell in love with Paris and France. Special time to be there. Um, it was, uh, it was quite, uh, quite incredible. Um, a lot of, um, energy. Um, I was lucky. I was working with various, um, British consultants from different companies, uh, working for this bank in central Paris. It was lovely. And I guess, um, the seed was sown there and then lay dormant for a while. Um, we fast forward to the London Olympics and I successfully applied to be a games maker. Um, and I thought that's going to be quite intense. We need a break after that. And an old school friend of mine uh, had been on for two or three years about um, his farmhouse in the Dordogne. Um, I would go and stay. So I booked it for when the Olympics finished. And Joanne and I um, drove down there, stayed there for a week. Absolutely loved both the, um, the house, the environment, the way of life. Um, and thought, yeah. This is something we could easily do. A month or so later, uh, I was commuting from London and uh, regular commuters will know you donate a bodily organ to buy a ticket and you don't even get guaranteed a seat. Um, on this particular Thursday, I was standing on a train out of Liverpool Street when they announced that there was a holdup. Um, I can't remember if it was a, a broken rail, a broken train or something, points failure. But anyway, we're stuck on this train for best part of two hours, um, wedged in the corner and my mind started going back to France and I thought, well, okay, we could, um, we could sell the house. We could pay off the mortgage. Uh, that would give us a lump sum. I know what the, roughly what the current exchange rate is that would buy us a very nice house and we'd be able to live. Um, I went back home and over dinner, explained that to Joanne and, uh, she didn't need too convincing, to be fair. Um, she was happily on board with that, uh, with that idea. And so that project started. And um, over what turned out to be um, three and a half years of some twists and turns, we actually made it here to the Carrez, not the Dordogne, but it's near na nearby neighbour. And we moved here in August 2016. Um, that was the, really the second, uh, the second building block to me becoming a, a writer, if you like. Um, the third major block was a couple of years after that, uh, I was in the middle of a video call with my youngest daughter and uh, partway through the conversation, she, she reached down in front of her, turned over something that had been laying on the table and it was a 12 week baby scan. And she basically saying, Hey, I'm pregnant. And it's due, um, you're going to be, be a grandfather again and, or grandparents again. And, um, the baby is due next spring. Well, one thing led to another and, um, over the course of a few more months, I agreed I was going to go back for a couple of, couple of weeks to, uh, both see the, uh, grandchild when it was born, but also to help her if she needed me and she was a bit apprehensive. Um, I also said that, um, I'd be around, I wouldn't make any other arrangements to go anywhere or do anything. Um, I'd effectively be on call for you. And, um, having done the initial, uh, meet and greet, I'd leave you and your husband with the, uh, the new one. 
um, to get acclimatized. And then when he has to go back to work, I'll come up and stay with you and just be there so that I can take the dogs for a walk and you can just concentrate on baby uh, for a few days and get used to going out because it's quite as simple as just putting baby in the car and turning the ignition key. You've got to take all manner of paraphernalia with you. Um, so we agreed that that's what I was going to do. And then reality for me here, it was, well, okay, what am I going to do for two weeks? Yes, probably four, five, six days of that will be with, with her and the baby. Um, what am I going to do the rest of the time? And I thought, well, okay. What? Whether, um, whether the idea came when I was out mowing the grass or wh whether it was when I came in from a dog walk, I'm not quite sure. But I thought, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book about moving to France because our, our journey here had a few twists and turns. It wasn't just because it was us. It was just because they're the sort of twists and turns that happened to everyone. And I thought, well, what I'd like to do is try and write a book that will appeal to someone who wants to move to France and would be a um, sort of ready reference guide for them to, to help them through the move, both before, during and after. And I set out with the intention of writing a book that had it been available at the time um, we were thinking of moving, I would have snapped it up and found it really useful. So <laughs> no little objective in mind. Um, and that's how my journey to becoming a, a writer, um, I say writer rather than an author. I think an author is someone like, oh, I don't know, um, John Le Carre or John Grisham or Agatha Christie, you know, they, they, they're a storyteller. They, they, um, find it easy just to put down in words, a story that draws you in. Um, I just wanted to write a reference book. So is it very much a reference book or does it have your story intertwined? <laughs> yes, it has stories intertwined. Um, it, it's, it's, um, it started off from a two-page breakdown of these are my main headings and these are some of the things that I'll put into it. And it's developed from there. Um, over the course of what the, the last four years, it's gone through four editions. Um, the first one was really an intellectual challenge for me is can I, can I do something I know nothing about and actually get it to a state where someone is convinced enough with the summary to actually want to buy it. Right. And, um, Needless to say, that first, uh, that first edition uh, was quite small. It turned out it was about 100 pages, um, obviously quite small. Um, it was only A5, um, had some pictures in, um, etc. So it wasn't too hard for me to, to write that amount of material based on the experience we had. And what I managed to weave into it was the, the research that we did before we moved here. Um, the actual house hunt and some of the, some of the things, um, that happened during our house hunt, we had the, at that point, the two and a half years of living here, um, to feed in. And one other main thing was that having moved here, um, different people had said to me in the intervening time, 
if we were going to move to France, what would you say? How would you go about doing it? What tips would you give us? And so on. And this had probably happened three or four times with different people. And I'd, I'd sent them um, uh, emails with, with um, bits and pieces in about what to do and who to see or where to go or what to avoid. And so I, um, I got hold of those. And I thought, okay, well, I've now got the base of material to, to work with. And what I need to do is to, to flesh out my headings. And the, the writing process, the development of a document from a blank sheet of paper to, to a, a finished document, I've been used to doing in my professional life, be it yeah. the documentation of different um, description, you know, business cases, newsletters, staff handbooks, um, trainer material even. Um, so that, that was um, second nature to me. The, the formatting and the mechanics was second nature. You know, I'd worked with um, Word um, from the end of the 80s when it was Word 6 through its various incarnations into um, Word for Windows, etc. Other word processors are available. I just chose to use that one um, because I was familiar with it. Um, I, as I say, I was used to doing that. I was used to developing documents with, with outlining, uh, outline view and headings and creating uh, auto numbering and so on and so forth and, and the version control. That was just part of my professional life. So I knew that once I had the material, I could go through various stages and produce the, um, the finished product quite easily. The finished product was going to be a problem, and that was the biggest challenge. Um, how on earth do you go about publishing a book? Well, That'll be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. What I did know, you could probably write on the head of a pin. Um, so what did I do? I, I went to the internet, which obviously everyone uses. It's a great source of reference. It can also be a great, um, great source of misleading you. Um, because people have a tendency to take, uh, take as gospel, anything they see or read on there. So I was a bit cautious thinking, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll read up about how to publish a book and I'll, I'll do this three or four times. And if there's a common theme, I'll take that as the way, way ahead rather than one specific person's slant on it. Mm. But what I discovered is it's quite a, quite a difficult process. Obviously, if I was living in London, I could have found potentially some um, publishers who I thought might be interested or, or, who, or even who focused on uh, travel type books and arranged to see them and float my idea. That wasn't going to be possible living here in France. Um, but what I did find out in, in my research was that you need obviously some editorial um, assessment and input as to whether it's going to be viable. You then need to develop the work. Uh, you need to proofread it, etc. All of which I was comfortable with. You then need to worry about the cover, um, formatting the book, marketing it, um, and I'm sure the question they would ask you, assuming that you pass all of those steps, is, well, how many do we print off initially? And again, if you're John Le Carre, Agatha Christie, or John Grisham, you 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 go for a quarter of a million easily. I just wanted a book that. I could hopefully persuade someone to buy. Um, so I kind of swayed from writing a book um, with a traditional publisher. And I thought, well, okay, what other routes are, have I got? Well, self-publishing is, is the obvious one. 
I, again, I knew nothing about self-publishing. I, I just hoped that it wasn't going to be anywhere near as complex as self-building your own house. Um, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that it was a little bit easier because you're not worried about formatting. You're not worried about page throws because an e-reader is a, a scalable device. You put the text in and someone um, can read it over 20 or 30 pages and someone else can read it over 100 because the background light isn't very good, their eyesight isn't very good, and they scale it accordingly. Yeah. So I, at that point, I thought, well, okay, um, my book is going to be an electronic one. It's not going to be a physical book. Um, but I guess at some point, I thought, well, I have an e-reader myself and it's great on holiday. You can take half a dozen books for the, uh, you know, for the storage space of a small paperback. Um, but there's something, to me, there's something about turning the pages of a book. And particularly if the book has got maps or tables that you want to refer to, it's easy to flick yeah. back to them. I find that I incredibly... I that refer yeah, reference books definitely prefer hard copies or very yeah, easy I... to... Find what you're looking for. Sometimes. Absolutely. I, and I find it very difficult with an e-reader, even, you know, the, the, the whole point of, of putting bookmarks down and, and going back to a certain part of text, it's just fiddly. And I'm the sort of person, that if I've got to read more than a couple of screens worth of, of uh, information, I'll tend to print it off. Bit of a Luddite in that respect. Um, but, but as part of doing all this, I, I, I found too that... There are two categories of book that have the highest um, editing cost. One is historical fiction, and the other one is non-reference, because the editor has got to go through the fact-checking process, and they've got to know the material. And I'd also found in a couple of places um, a ready calculator where you could uh, input the number of pages or number of words in your book and it would give you a rough breakdown of expected costs on each stage of publishing and by this time because i'd written two or three pages and worked out how many average words per line per page etc i figured i was going to be about 100 pages um, and i thought it may may come about 25 30,000 words allowing for, you know, pictures and, and whatever. And I, I popped this, this information into the calculator and it came back with 5,000 pounds. Wow. And I thought, mm, that turns it into a vanity project. I, I, I don't want to publish a book that much. that I want to spend 5,000 pounds to do so. I just want to do it for the challenge. Um, so I thought, okay, it's got to be, got to be self-publishing. Um, what options do I have with self-publishing? Um, the research there obviously threw up Amazon because they're the largest bookshop in the world these days. Um, other other um, uh, routes are available. Uh, I know people, some people on principle avoid Amazon. Um, I didn't want to be um, tied in with Amazon and I found that I could create a book through them, but it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be exclusive to them. And I found that there are, I'm, I'm not sure where your podcast listeners come from, Heather, but um, particularly in America, there, there's a couple of companies, uh, Lulu, 
who um, provide a platform for ebooks, particularly. And also, a very useful company I came across was called Draft to Digital. Um, they're not a publisher as such, they're an aggregator. And you basically send them your ebook, and um, they will then distribute it to companies like um, Kobo, Tolino, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, Hoopla, Vivio. I, mine, uh, my book through them is available at 15 different publishers. So that, that was quite useful. Um, and obviously, as I've said, the fact that you're just effectively producing text, you're not worrying about the formatting as such, means that I'd, I'd focused on the ebook. While I was um, while I was working my way through that, this little voice came back to me again and said, "It'd be really nice to to have a book that you can that you can turn over and look at the pages and, and just see it on a bookshelf and wipe the dust off it occasionally." Mm-hmm. And um, because at that point I was into um, writing the ebook, I thought, "Well." It's not too big a stretch to then copy that into a different document and aim to make a paperback, mm. um, which is what I did. Effectively, I uh, in the middle of um, in the middle of 2019, I this is three months after I had the idea uh, prior to visiting uh, what turned out to be granddaughter. Um, I published the um, ebook and uh, accompanying. Uh, color paperback. Um, I, I then, because Brexit was stomping around in the, in the background, looming in and out of everyone's conversation, a bit like Banquo's ghost, um, I had this idea that I release a second edition um, later that year. Um, two reasons for that. One is um, going out on a dog walk every day. I see things or things would happen. And I think, why didn't you include that? Um, I also want, I also wanted to sort of capitalize on what I thought might be a Christmas rush um, mm. and, and get the book out at uh, the end of November time. And I was buoyed by the fact that um, at the end of June, I tapped into my account on Amazon and saw that in the... Um, in the 18 days um, since I published it on the 13th of June, I'd sold six copies. And I thought, wow, this is me with an idea. Um, and someone else thinks it's a good idea, good enough to buy it. So yeah. that gave me the enthusiasm um, to actually work through another version and so on. Excellent. I just ask, just curious that you said um, you saw things on your dog walk. What example of those things that yeah. you would include in a book? Okay. Um, these are not all on the dog wall, but things that occurred to me. Um, one example that I remember was um, a car went past. It had red number plates. I'd never seen red number plates before because here in France, um, or certainly in, in sort of southwest central France, people aren't that materialistic, certainly not as... They are in the UK. You don't see personalized number plates and, and such. And I'd never seen a red number plate. So I asked around with the people that I knew at the time and said, 
you know, what is it? And someone said, oh, I think they're diplomatic plates. And I wonder what diplomatic plates would be doing here in the Corres. So I uh, turned to the internet and researched it. And I found that uh, red number plates are either, um, I think it's, got, it's called transit temporaire, and they're either um, given to new cars that are due for export, and the VAT, or the TVA as it's called here, um, tax value uh, ajouté, um, has not been paid. So that's one example, and there is um, two of the 96 mainland departments of France over in the east near Switzerland, um, Chex and Savoie are effectively free trade zones, and cars in that area have red number plates. Oh. Um, I'd also... Uh, because we'd experienced it, the, the house that we have has some land with it, which has a, it's bigger than a pond, but it's not a lake. Um, here it's called an itang. Um, but we had some um, uninvited guests on this itang uh, called koipu. They are um, rodents. They, um, they have no natural predators. They breed like koipu, um, which are, like rodent uh, forms of rabbits um, and they're voracious diggers and they they dig um, dig holes they eat huge amounts of vegetation and um, I as I say they have no natural predators and I needed them gone from my from my lake and so I wrote a um, a section to include about koipu and uh, what they are, what they do, and how you remove them. Um, we had also, unfortunately, um, at that point, had a friend whose wife had passed away. And so I, I wrote another section in the everyday living part of the book um, about death. Um, death as part of living and you know, how you approach a funeral. Because in France, everything happens very quickly from when per some some person dies to when they're buried or cremated it's only five or six days pass um so everything's very quick uh, so that that's not a very nice example but it's certainly something that people moving here need to be aware of so what are the examples of the sections of your book how have you okay well when i when i started off obviously there was an introduction which was a bit about me and the background to how i came to write the book um i could I then wanted to um, uh, explain how to find what, what in the book I call, in inverted commas, the one. Um, so you need to establish your, your why, as in why do you want to move to France. Determine your what. So what type of property, having decided you want to move here, what type of property do you want? Is it, um, is it something you want to run as a business, or at least you could run as a business in those days. It's a, it's a lot harder now because pre-Brexit, you could effectively do what you want business-wise. Um, Post-Brexit, it's a lot more difficult because you need a business visa to come here. You need a business plan and so on and so forth. Um, so it was a case of determining what you want. Do you want a large house? Do you want a small house? Do you want to lock up and leave? Do you want something with land? Do you want something in town? 
and so on. Once you've done that and you know why you're here and what you want, it's work out your where. So where do you want to live? Is it somewhere where you can um, run a business? Is it somewhere you can indulge your passion? You can um, visit vineyards. You can indulge in hill walking. You can explore the many caves that are around. You can go boating. Um, you can visit the UNESCO monuments, of which there are probably 40 World Heritage Sites, I believe, in France. Um, so work out where you want to live. And then all that feeds into what I've called finding the one, um, which is uh, planning, your, um, planning your visit to your, your viewing trip, um, some questions to ask the estate agent. Um, and then once you've found it, how you prepare for that while you're in the UK, um, what happens during your move? Once you're here, how do you settle in? What, what's best to do um, once you're here? And I would strongly advise anyone who's uh, thinking of moving here to uh, go and visit your mayor. Um, it, it's, it's often stated, but often overlooked. If you think that in France, there are somewhere north of 36,000 communes, all with a locally elected mayor. And the mayor has such great sway in what happens locally from um, accepting planning permission um, and to what clubs can run, what activities can take place and so on and so forth. And persevere and go and see your mayor. I say persevere because if I can digress slightly, uh, our trip to see the mayor took five visits. We moved in. And the week after we moved in, we said, we'll go and see the mayor. So we drove down, we drove, it's only a mile away, but we were doing stuff. So we drove, we were called in at the Marie to find he was on holiday. Okay, no problem. We'll come back. At that point, I, um, when we got home some point over that weekend, I emailed in a list of questions that I was going to ask him and, um, said, we'll, we'll come back as it happened. Um, that was about three weeks later, because in the, in the meantime, we, we driven back to England to, to collect that dog, um, Alfie. And, um, we drove back down, decided it was time to go and see the mayor. We went down one Friday lunchtime. Now the mayor, uh, there was no picture of him on the uh, commune website. So we had no idea who he was or whether we'd even bumped into him shopping. Mm. As we were on our way to the Marie, the, uh, there was a funeral taking place a uh, funeral cortege was walking up the road so i stopped pulled over and they walked past okay we don't know if he's um part of the funeral yeah. right okay we'll um we'll come back next week so again the following week we went back um we were told he's very busy this was a friday okay no problem we'll come back tomorrow saturday morning went down to the marie He's not working today. I think at that point, the secretarial staff were, were um, feeling somewhat sorry for us. And they said, come back on Monday. So Monday we came. We met him for maybe I had five minutes. We, we said hello. He knew the, the story that we'd been to see him a few times. And um, we went to his office and he said, so, so why, why have you come to see me? 
And I said, well, um, I'd like, uh, I'd like you to, um, be able to, to give me some answers to the questions I sent you. The blank look on his face went outside. We could hear raised voices and uh, he came back in a little while later and, and it turned out that the, the questions that I'd sent in, he hadn't seen, he hadn't been given. Right. So he said, come back next week. And he looked in his diary and he said, dad, come back next week. Come back on Wednesday. Okay. This will be visit number six. So oh, the, the Tuesday morning came and, um, thinking, go and see the mayor tomorrow. And the phone rang and I answered it and it was the mayor in person. And he said, I am so sorry. I'm going to be very busy tomorrow. Please come and see me on Thursday. So visit number seven, we went to see the mayor on a Thursday. This is probably five, six weeks after we originally tried. And all credit to him, he had the, he had the list of questions, which ranged from, is it okay to, to paint the house? Can we paint, you know, can we add shutters? Can we have a barbecue? Are there any restrictions as to what we can do and when and so on? And he went through it line by line. He answered every single question. And since then, whenever we've seen him in a supermarket, in a boulangerie, or just out walking, um, he always stops, says hello, shakes a hand. Um, we have far more interaction with him than we ever did with any local uh, authority fish official in the UK. Um, so anyone, please go and see your mayor. Keep on his good side. Don't take him a bottle of scotch or a bottle of something because that will be interpreted as a bribe, potentially. And he may, there have been examples where people have done that and the gendarmerie have been called. So don't do that. Just go and see him, say hello, let him know your face and it'll go from there. Good. Good piece of advice. I believe you've now written another two, three version. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, after the initial two versions, I, I wrote a third version, which came out after transition um, at the beginning of 2021, January 2021, um, I wrote a third version and that, um, that had some more extensions to the section on everyday living. Um, I put some, um, a section in about what I called amusing incidents only in France, things that happen and you think there's no way this would have happened in the, <laughs> in the UK for whatever reason. And it's not to belittle the French, it's just to say there is a humorous side to living here. Um, and that particular version dealt with the fact that you can't just up sticks and move to France these days, like you could pre-Brexit and pre-transition. You need to apply for a visa, um, certainly before you want to come and set up a business, if that's your intention, you need a different type of visa and so on and so forth. Um, I brought out a fourth version at the end of that year, um, once the trade agreement had been signed and had been in force and that had, um, a section about the traditions that you would find in France, for example, um, the tradition of aperos with your name, you know, inviting your neighbors for aperos, um, the tradition that every year. Um, there are certain cakes that come out around Christmas time with a religious figure in, um, all tied in with the, um, the Catholic heritage of the country. Um, I also decided because the book was getting 
big at that point. It started off um, as A5. Uh, it, it moved up to six to nine, six by nine. And purely because of a certain uh, company's charging structure, I decided to increase the page size to seven by 10 because the, uh, there were now 120,000 words as opposed to 30,000 words. And so the, right. pa the pages um, had gone from 100 to 250, and I needed to increase the page size to keep the cost down and make it um, viable for someone to buy as part of um, their research into moving here. Right. So did you still do the physical copy for the... Oh, very much, yeah. I, I, I developed the... Um, uh, in each of those versions, I developed both um, the ebook and the paperback version. Um, because as I said, I, I personally like, um, thumbing through a book and it's easy with a reference book to do so. I can't imagine doing this sort of thing, um, with an ebook and particularly not that I'm one of those people, but you know, some people like scribbling over books. So you, you may find as it's a reference book, that certain sections are highlighted or pages turned over or whatever. So I, I wanted to produce a paperback as well. Um, my, I have one more book in me, I think, one more iteration in me. Um, and I'm currently looking to, to maybe get that finished this month. One of the lessons that I'd learned is unlike with the earlier, um, changes, versions two, three, and four, where I had a deadline in mind, um, because of Brexit, because of the trade agreement and so because of Christmas, et cetera, it was an artificial deadline. Um, this time round, I haven't set one. I would originally thought that it was uh, maybe going to be released at Easter. Um, that never happened. Then I thought it would be the summer. The summer came and went with all of the activities that go on in France in the summer with evening markets and so on and influx of visitors. And I'm now thinking it could be this month. I hope it's this month. If not, then. Hey, I'm retired. I've got all the time in the world. It could be, <laughs> it could be, uh, it could be next month. Um, a big Sorry, I was just going to, can I just ask, um, so you, you got the paperback copy out there. Did you have to find a publisher? How did you go about? No, that was one of, for me, that was another attraction of self-publishing. Sorry. I never, never covered that with, um, with the publisher. I, I said that. At some point, you'll undoubtedly be asked a difficult question of how many uh, books you want in, in the initial print run. And of course, mm. I'd had no idea, and I would have said one, um, which would have increased the cost tremendously, I'm sure. The attraction with self-publishing, particularly with the three companies that I mentioned, is that it's all print on demand. There's no stock. There's no inventory. You don't have any overhead. You publish, uh, publicize your book. Someone will read the, uh, the summary, think, okay, yeah, I want to buy. So you're moving to France. They, um, they hit the purchase. They, they make the, um, credit card transaction and effectively a personalized copy is printed and dispatched to them. Oh, right. I didn't realize that. That means, um, that has so many advantages. Obviously you don't have a mm -hmm. pile of uh, redundant books of old editions sitting in the corner, gathering dust. Um, you don't have to worry about any of that. It's all personalized. It's bound. Um, and it's sent to you within a couple of days. I know that from someone who, uh, I was, um, 
in contact with and I told them about the book and they said, it sounds interesting. I'm going to buy it. Then about an hour later, I got a message saying I've just bought it. And two days later saying it's just arrived. I've just started reading it. So I know it's quick, a quick process. Um, and it obviously it's very convenient, certainly from a, an author's point of view. And are you still enjoying France? Are you recommending people? Absolutely. Every time, and it isn't very often that I go back to England, maybe a couple of times, maybe three times a year. Um, every time I go back to England, I can't wait to come back to France. I love the fact that it's like England used to be 50 years ago. It's, it's more relaxed. There's no... Um, owed undue health and safety, that could be a bad thing, but um, you're not hidebound by, by rules. There's a lot of open space, particularly in southwest France. Um, France itself is four and a half times the size of England, so there's a lot of, mm. lot of space. The roads are in much better shape. Um, the, the way of life is such that it still focuses on, on villages, uh, during the summer, the villages all have um, uh, evening markets or um, fates at weekends. Uh, we just really, um, really enjoy being here. Seven years on, I can thoroughly recommend it. So the cast is called Choosing Happy. Do you feel you found you've chosen happy there? Absolutely, Heather. Absolutely. I, I said um, at some point during my discourse that I, when I was talking about the mayor, that um, we drove back to England. This was a couple of weeks after moving in. Um, we chose that deliberately purely because the house had a fair bit of land with it. And we weren't sure how the, uh, our dog would react to that. So um, I had to make sure that there was adequate fencing, certainly around the house. So he wasn't just going to run off into, an, uh, into a strange place. Mm. And just on that... Um, drive back to England within two weeks of being here, um, it already felt like home for me. And I completely cut ties with England. Obviously, the children were still there. We, Joanne and I have five between us. Um, so we still see them and we talk to them on video calls and so on. But um, France felt like home and still feels very much like home. Excellent. So if people want to know how to contact you or where to find you on social media, where is that? I know um, I'll put them in the show notes, but is there anything? Um, they can uh, they can contact me um, at outlook.com. That's my name, um, at outlook.com. They can look me up on Facebook. I, I don't have any other social media accounts. Oh, you, you can call LinkedIn social media, but... Um, not for this purpose, I don't think. So they're welcome to contact me um, through those means. I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating. You're very welcome, Heather. It's um, a pleasure to uh, talk to you. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it or think it would be valuable to others, please do share. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave me a review. It really helps the podcast. All of the links are in the show notes. And I look forward to seeing you next week on the Choosing Happy podcast.